Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. You guys hear me talk about the benefits of red light therapy all of the time. Red light is amazing for our bodies. Red light has been shown to boost collagen production, accelerate muscle recovery, strengthen mitochondria and energy, enhance sleep, support hormonal balance, relieve joint pain, and support the body's natural healing processes. My favorite at-home red light is Loombox. Loombox combines both red light and near-infrared light for the most effective benefits and is safe for the whole family. It is also independently tested for EMFs with great results. I've got an exclusive offer for my podcast community. Using the link in my show notes, you can get $250 off your Loombox pre-order for their updated model launching in January 2024. Once again, use the link in my show notes to get this exclusive $250 off deal. Drew Ramsey is a board-certified psychiatrist, author, and mental health advocate. His work focuses on clinical excellence, nutritional psychiatry, male mental health, and creative media. He is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and founded the Brain Food Clinic, a digital mental health clinical practice. His work has been featured by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Lancet Psychiatry, the Today Show, BBC, and NPR, and he has given three TED Talks. He is co-author of the Antidepressant Food Scale and created the first e-courses on nutritional psychiatry education for the public and clinicians. His books, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Eat Complete, Fifty Shades of Kale, and The Happiness Diet explore the connections between mental health and nutrition. He is on the advisory board at Men's Health, the editorial board at Medscape Psychiatry, and the scientific advisory board of the anti-stigma nonprofit Bring Change to Mind. He lives in Jackson, Wyoming with his wife and two children. Welcome everyone to today's show. Today we have Dr. Drew Ramsey, who is a nutritional psychiatrist, which you guys know I love talking about nutrition, and he talks a lot about mental health. So who better than to have Dr. Drew Ramsey on the show today to talk about nutritional effects with our mental health. So thank you so much for being here today. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thank you. And and thanks for everybody who tuned in. I'm excited about this conversation. I am too. Before we delve into things, will you just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, your background and what you do? Yeah. So, hey, everybody. I mean, first of all, I want you to know I'm a dad. My wife and I have two wonderful kids, 12 and 10 a daughter and a son. And so I guess I want you to know I'm a clinician besides all of the stuff maybe uh, you see on Instagram or uh, my books in nutritional psychiatry. I, I sit with patients and lead a clinical team. And that's just what I love to do and how I was trained. And so when I think about things like food, I'm really trying to always think in some ways as those two roles as a responsible dad and husband and as a responsible clinician I just think so much of what gets said to us about mental health and food, I don't know, it's just like there's enough to be terrified as a parent. So I hope today we can have a really uh, balanced talk. Just quickly, a little bit about me. I'm in a a somewhat new phase of my life. I'm in Jackson, Wyoming, leading a clinical team at Spruce Mental Health. We're an integrative mental health clinic trying to combine all of what we know about mental health and nutritional psychiatry, along with the new psychedelic medicine movement. I'm mostly been in New York City at Columbia University, where I've been on the faculty and where I trained. 
and I'm from rural Indiana. So part of my interest in food really goes back to farms. You see my vibe, got some books most recently, Depression and Anxiety, which I hope most useful book in terms of really summarizing the science. And we'll, we'll talk all about that on this episode. And my horse's name is Senko. I have like the biggest emotional support animal of anyone I know. And I'm not like a size matters kind of guy, but I just, I should say that right away. It's like, <laughs> yeah. But if you want me to introduce myself, my horse Senko and I, that's a big part of my wellness and mental fitness regimen. So, oh, I have a new podcast, Mental Fitness Revolution. Those are all the things I want to say about myself. Awesome. I love that. Okay. Well, let's just delve right in then. And let's talk about what is nutritional psychiatry? People might be like, what is she talking about? Well, that's great because it's a new and it's a new set of ideas in mental health that have really popped over the past 15 years in the research, particularly in the last five years. It's the mashup of nutrition. And for me, that means food and dietary pattern and mental health. And I'm a psychiatrist. There have been a few of us, um, myself, uh, Uma Naidu at Harvard, Chris Palmer at Harvard, Georgia Iadis, Emily Deans, Laura LaChance, a number of psychiatrists and a couple of organizations have just been really interested in this over the past couple of decades. And as the research uh, has matured for our team for maybe the past 15 years, has really been but prioritizing food and thinking about food and thinking about nutrition as it relates to mental health, not in the way that a lot of people do that, you know, that's it. Like, oh, it's the lectins and the gluten and the toxins and the, and the mold in your coffee. No way. Like we want to come at it from uh, the evidence and, and from noting that mental health is really complex and we all can agree, right? Whether you believe in meds or not, whether you believe in therapy or not, whether you like psychiatry or not, like we all can agree you have to properly nourish the brain for it to function optimally. So nutritional psychiatry doesn't have a formal definition yet. My formal definition on my slide deck, I say it's the use of nutrition to optimize brain health and to treat and prevent mental health concerns and disorders. And those tenets are really important to me. One, that it's about optimizing brain health so we're all involved in caring for our brain and our mental health. And we think about the activities where that matters. We stop kind of arguing about food and what's healthy and what superfood we need. And we really get to like the basics of what's wrong, which is very clear in the data and what's right to eat for our mental health, which, which is also pretty clear in the data. So that's nutritional psychiatry. And then just the last part quickly to treat mental health disorders, you know, for anything that we can do to help folks, particularly with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder. I mean, most mental health disorders have a lot of, it's a horrible term. Caroline, we call it treatment resistant, where I've, I've actually not ever seen a patient resist good treatment where it's like, hey, I've got something. It's going to take away your symptoms. Doesn't have a lot of side effects. I've never seen anyone resist that. So we need a better term, but that's what it's called treatment resistant depression. That's about half of people who have depression. So, so we know we have a lot of tools that work, but we also know we need new tools. And so that's where to treat and the idea that like fermented foods are involved in the treatment of depression and anxiety and uh, maybe bipolar disorder. I mean, that's like a new idea right. with some, some data behind it. Um, and then the prevention, I would say the, one of the newest ideas because so many families have a history like our family, right? Of a lot of complexity. We see mental health running in families. And, and so there's a way that if that's in your family, if you have a family with depression or anxiety or alcoholism or psychosis, right? Any parent wonders like, Hey, like 
what are the kind of things that I should be doing and thinking about? And so what are the tools that I should be giving my kids and teaching them? So it's one of those ideas in the data and, and, and supported by the data that there is some prevention uh, when it comes to mental health disorders, if we really engage in some lifestyle uh, changes and innovations um, with things like nutrition. Wow. I have so many questions to ask you about this. I love this newer way of thinking of how to treat and help and prevent mental health issues. So you said that there are definitely good foods, you call them, that nourish the brain and foods that don't nourish the brain. So can we talk about some of those foods? What are some of the foods that do nourish the brain? I'm happy to go through those. We call them a lot of different things. Right, ultra processed foods, fast food, fried food, bad foods, toxic foods. And I think that the one thing that nutritional psychiatry is, I've been developing the tenets of it. And I go over those in the books and also in some of the e-courses that we have to really try and think about food differently. The lens that we look at food often is like calories. Or as a psychiatrist, I just noted when I'd speak to people, particularly women about food, it's like a lot of guilt and pain and neurosis and, and body shaming and lack of pleasure and desire. I mean, it's just not good mental health stuff. And it really got me thinking a lot about nourishment and how we nourish ourselves, how we think about ourselves, and the types of values that have been given to us by medicine and nutrition in some ways that I think distort that. Our food kind of messaging isn't like empowering. It's easy it's inexpensive, you've got this, you know what you're doing. <laughs> and I think that that's really true for so many people. Okay, so can I ask you this then? Maybe I'll re-ask the question. Are there certain nutrients that you think people are lacking that would really nourish the brain and help with mental health? Yes, and I don't mean to avoid the question. Let's talk about <laughs> the food that we shouldn't be eating for our mental health. Okay. Right at the top of that list right now, fried foods. I've got a nice video up on YouTube about uh, this very new research that came out from the UK Biobank, looking at over 100,000 people and a correlation between fried foods and an increased risk of depression and anxiety. And they asked why. So a Western diet was what was correlated. And like, hey, have a what in a Western diet? And they're like, you know, fried foods. And they're like, yeah, but why? So there's this really interesting research and I'm writing about this in my new book around mental health and what, what we should do, mental fitness, how do we create it? They did this study with zebrafish, and they show that what happens when we fry foods, we've increased our soybean oil consumption, which is the main thing we fry food in by a thousandfold over the past, let's say, 100 years. And when we fry food, we create acrylamide. So they did a study where they dosed these zebrafish with acrylamide, and they turn into these, you know, essentially very anxious, not so social, not exploratory zebrafish. And so I think, you know, when you talk about like bad foods and why, and what's in the Western diet that's so bad for us? Ultra-processed food, what's that mean? It's made of food components. You turn it over, right? You see soy protein isolate. You see you know, invert sugar. You know, when there has been outrage about high fructose corn syrup, that's, a, I would say, more of a signal or an indicator that, that you're, you know, you're in the land of processed foods. This is where our artificial colorings and, and uh, preservatives and the things that you know, make foods crunch and taste good go in. And so researchers yesterday, I, mean, I think the last time I saw it was like 40,000 new chemicals in the grocery store. So I think instead of trying to get specific about you know, how those foods are bad, nutritional psychiatry just takes the approach that you know, the human brain, super complex, been nourished on a core set of foods and nutrients. And, and so those, you know, some of the bad foods are you know, ultra processed foods, uh, foods that I think alter your palate, 
which isn't on a lot of people's lists, right? If it's very sweet, if it's, you know, uh, like key lime pie yogurt and, uh, you know, sticky sweet alcoholic drinks, you you know, with a bit of a skewed palate. And so this is where, you know, in terms of bad foods, thinking about protecting your palate, protecting your mind, your brain from a set of nutrients that, you know, I'm not going to like say they're horribly toxic, but just like, there's no reason to consume. There is no way that they improve your mind. So like, get rid of them. And then to your question of nutrients, the science on that, we published in the antidepressant food scale, Dr. Laura Lachance, another psychiatrist, and I looked at the data, this was about 2017, and just said, look, if you look at the science, what nutrients matter the most to clinical depression? We found there are 12 nutrients that at that point in the science had significant data that they could prevent or help mm. prevent depression and as well as treat depression. And so what foods have the most of those? You think that's something that all of us would like know, right? right. Are like these are the brain foods, right? right. They've got B12 and magnesium and zinc and you know, all nutrients are important, but there's a set of nutrients like omega-3 fats are just a little more important in the data for mental health. And what's really interesting is a lot of clinicians don't know. I didn't know. A lot of parents don't know. And so we turned to supplements. We turned to that marketing. And nutritional psychiatry really asks of us to turn to food, our relationship with food, and to just maybe up-level our knowledge just a little bit. What food has the most magnesium? B12. I see people take it shots and sprays and you store three to five years of B12 in your liver. Unless you're a vegan or vegetarian, it's not, probably not something you really need to supplement unless you can't absorb it. But then there's also that question like what food has the most B12? It's clams. Most of us don't like rotate clams in our diet like got B12 on the menu tonight. Right. It seems right now, especially with the flow of information that we have, you know, that that's more possible than ever to really pick a little bit more, we call this nutrient density, pick foods with a little more nutrient density, more brain nutrients per calorie. I love that. But I think a lot of people out there aren't aware of what nutrients they do need, first of all. And second, they're not aware of where they come from. I mean, if you ask someone like, what are five foods with B12 in them? I think the average American would have a really hard time telling you what those five foods are. And same with magnesium. Carlin, the average physician would have a hard time telling you. <laughs> and I just embrace that because I am a psychiatrist. I'm not like a nutritionist. I grew up on a farm, so I appreciate food. I feel like I know a fair amount about food and, and growing it. Uh, I'm looking down here because I picked up my book and I feel like you're setting me up for a wonderful answer, which is to tell you that you know none of us know. Let's just admit it right? Vitamin E, one of the most important fat soluble nutrients for your brain, meaning your brain dissolves in the fat of your brain. And I call it a firefighter, puts out fire. And so none of us know exactly where that is until we decide we need to know. And I think you need to know. And that's why it's in the books. Uh, the last two books I go through uh, in Eat Complete, I go through 21 nutrients. I list what it does for your brain. And most importantly, what are the top five foods in terms of having the highest concentration of that nutrient. And so uh, I do that in all the books. Here's magnesium. I'm sorry, I do that in Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. If you're watching the video, I'm just showing that we have these little drawings that show the recommended daily amounts. So we just know you can just open the book. Hey, you know, women need 320 milligrams a day. And just like, like, all right, like, where do you get 150 milligrams of magnesium? And then you see, okay, almond, it's got the top sources, almonds, spinach, cashews, black beans. I like to say for magnesium, I always remember beans and greens. Oh, there you go. And fancy seltzer. That's the other one. Like, I don't know. There's some fancy seltzers where drinking magnesium in water is like the most highly absorbable form. 
And people are always like, what's the best form? I'm like, seltzer is the best form. But getting that knowledge, vitamin E, by the way, just I don't mean to tease anybody with that data, vitamin E, sunflower seeds are the kind of sleeper ones. I'm gonna see those sprinkled in my salads. Or I put them in my omelet sometimes. Uh, vitamin E also is great in olive oil. That's why that's the main fat I recommend you have in your house. Avocados. So uh, vitamin E is found in almonds. And so thinking about you know some of these foods that are more nutrient dense, that have these nutrients, and then clinically, when I work with patients, you know, you don't want to overwhelm everyone. You stand in the grocery store, you're like, all right, zinc, magnesium, vitamin E, omega-3 fats. Like, yeah. We often focus then on food categories because to get deep down the rabbit hole of nutritionism, which form of this, which form of that, it's like you're going to lose because Mother Nature's got all kinds of tricks up her sleeve. She's got eight forms of vitamin E and you know, 5,000 carotenoids and all these different cool molecules that we're just learning about. So don't worry about the nutrients. Worry about finding the nutrient-dense foods. And we do that in nutritional psychiatry by looking at food through a lens of food categories. And what are those categories that you're referring to? Yeah, so I have a little rhyme to remember the first rhyme and then a couple of additions. But the rhyme seafood greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate. And uh, seafood, that's where we get our long chain omega-3 fats. Greens are just nutrient dense, meaning that for 30 calories a cup, you get all this vitamin K, you get all this vitamin C and folate and fiber and phytonutrients and water. I mean, it's just, uh, greens are great. Uh, nuts and beans, I would say under attack horribly these days <laughs> and misunderstood. As a, as a clinician, when you talk to individuals about nuts, particularly people who are in that kind of calorie counting, still anti-fat world uh, in, in terms of dietary fats. Nuts are like a calorie bomb. Nuts are like a little portable packet of olive oil in my mind with some fiber, some slow burning carb, and lots of cool nutrients. And, and so seafood greens, nuts and beans, beans, one, help us with fiber, two, help us with being more plants. If you look at one of the most recent trials treating young men with clinical depression, with nutritional counseling, 36% of them went to full remission. The, the tricks that the head researcher told me were olive oil and beans. The young men are really oriented towards protein. So learning about hummus, learning about black beans, learning about lentils, 18 grams of protein in a cup of lentils. Dark chocolate is just a great food for us all to, again, take a step back from. Guilty treat? Well, I sure hope not. Dark chocolate is a fermented food. It's full of fiber, magnesium, iron, such an important nutrient for women. And there's a, if we're getting real dark chocolate, it's a fermented seed. I mean, it's really good stuff for us and very overall for many people, something that is a healthy part of eating for mental health and brain health. I love all of that. And I love your little rhyme. It comes down to, I feel like, educating people. If people are educated a little bit more about foods or a little bit more about their health, I feel like they would be empowered to make better decisions for their health and their family's health. Yep. I completely agree with that, Carlin. That's why I'm glad we're talking right now. I'm glad everybody's listening and thinking about this. And I hope they hear my enthusiasm and encouragement you know, that it's very achievable and it's achievable for families, it's achievable for moms. And that part of that, I think, again, is stepping back, taking a step back from a lot of the misinformation that we're fed around food, uh, a lot of the messaging we're told too hard and it's too expensive and it's only this or only that. And again, really reminding ourselves 
of a lot of the simple wisdom we have about food. Right. And there are two other food, a couple others that are just real important to mention. Oh, One, okay. the rainbow vegetables, right? And it's a quick way to just kind of look at what you're preparing. I do this at all of our meals. You don't always get there, right? Again, occasionally it's the beige diet. You're like, hmm, like many shades of beige. Okay. <laughs> but in general, if there are colors on your plate, you know, this uh, idea of eat the rainbow, really kind of helpful notion. I'll look at the plate and, you know, if I see no green, it's like, this happened last night. I saw no green. I went to the fridge. This is easy for me. I like kale. I chopped up three leaves of lacinato kale, sprinkled it on everything. I thought quite yummy. We do that with microgreens a lot. You can chop up a red pepper. So looking and trying to see three colors on your plate from natural foods, whole, meaning whole real you know, vegetables. And uh, one reason also in that is that as we eat different colors, you're just naturally getting a diversity of what we call phytonutrients. These are plant-based molecules as we're learning more about the gut and the microbiome, you know, one of those like fundamental shifts in mental health, yeah. I never would have been like, you should eat kefir. I mean, that's a, and there's evidence for it. And it's like a new statement for all of us in mental health, but eating more fermented foods, more rainbows because they have a lot of phytonutrients. And then also the last food category is more fermented foods, uh, kombuchas, kefirs, yogurts, kimchi, and, and lots of cool new science about that in the microbiome. And sadly, the American society, we're not huge into kimchi and, you know, these fermented foods. So that's going to be a new education that we've got to educate people on. I had like a transformative kimchi experience in a local restaurant here in Wyoming, which is probably not something that happens, you know, I ever expected to say, but it did happen. Kimchi is one of those fermented foods for me that's been a little challenging. And one of the ways that I love to eat it now is in a stir fry. In fact, there's a kimchi stir fry in Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety uh, for that reason. But I still kind of feel like I should be able to just pick it up and eat it. And it doesn't, it just, just sort of doesn't settle. I don't think I'm used to it. Maybe I'm not getting, it's not a food I'm super familiar with. But I went to a Japanese restaurant that had a, a kimchi kind of sauce on cucumbers. Mm. And it just, I was so excited that we ordered it. So delicious. It was such a fun way to eat a lot of cucumbers. So I'll just say kimchi. That's one that, I, yes, it, it's not, uh, many of these aren't familiar. What is familiar is yogurt. What is familiar to many Americans is local dairy. Um, raw dairy. What, yeah. I mean, raw dairy, we, we could go into controversial territory. <laughs> I think certainly that's how it all used to be. And I think there's a lot of having grown up on a farm and having like milked a goat into my coffee cup a couple of times, I, you know, I'm happy to talk about uh, <laughs> dairy and what happens when you homogenize it and pasture it. But, and it's also, you know, as you can see, there are food categories that are not kind of at the head of the pack when we're thinking about what people need to change in the, in the foods I'm talking about. You know, if we think about where a lot of calories come from for most Americans, it's going to be meat and dairy and eggs. So again, uh, nutritional psychiatry approaches those through a lens of your preferences, your culture, if you're having medical issues related to any of those foods, um, what is this you've gotten so far? And to really see the easy moves. Uh, for most people, it's a question of like meat or no meat and, and a lot of guilt as opposed to how do you really upgrade your meat? How do you improve the quality? How do you improve the carb? If you're worried about environmental stuff, how do you improve the carbon footprint? a friend out here who's been raising 26 buffalo. I think to do that, he's now managing, maintaining, and preserving something like 700 acres of pasture. 
Oh, wow. That's so good for the environment. So good. It's so good for the land. It's so good for, um, you know, in terms of raising those animals and what they prefer. So there's a lot of kind of different ways to farm and choose and consume meat. Um, and you know, when you say like people aren't familiar with some of these foods, I think you're really picking up on something that's very important where, where it feels uh, foreign and hard to, to step outside what we're used to. It's like, um, I stopped uh, drinking alcohol a couple of years, which was great for my health. But there's a part of that where you feel like you're kind of step, stepping out of a part of a, let's call it like the American masculine culture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so there's something about taking a step away from a diet that's pizza and wings and burgers and fries. And one of the primary currencies is efficiency and cost. Not that those aren't important. But you know that that's what's valued and and kind of supersaturated tastes um, and, and to step into something else. Yeah, you're so right. And what you talked about though, cost. I get this all the time from moms. Like it's so much more expensive to eat this way. And in reality, buying fruits and vegetables and beans and lentils and nuts is actually way cheaper than buying all the ultra processed prepackaged foods. But Amen. somehow we've Amen. mixed that up Amen. in marketing. Amen to that. I really appreciate you saying that, but but let's just answer that question, right? One, I think there's the fear that kids won't eat it. You make a big crock of lentil soup, it costs you six bucks and your kids don't eat it. You know, it, it it's sort of uh, some of those processed foods are favorites, are delicious, are super easy and super cheap. And so one thing that I recommend is identifying in some ways whether you and if your household, your family are a kind of gradually taper so you can experience both, you know, and start to find favorites or whether you're a kind of, uh, you know, cold turkey, right? you're going to like <laughs> clean out the pantry, get rid of all the stuff that you think is garbage, fill it up with things that you feel you and your, you know, uh, whoever you're feeding and eating with are good choices. And I see people do that both ways. And I think both ways can be effective depending on who you are. We have a, a resource on my website, DrewMTMD.com, which is Brain Food on a Budget, because we got this question so much. And it, Alex, who's on our team, made this just, she's awesome. She went all over, we were in the Midwest, and we kind of all looked at prices to just, I guess, walk the talk. Mm-hmm. So I think it's less expensive. Here's why. It's because you're consuming a lot of vegetables that are oven roasted. I think the other reason is because I, I live that. Besides the restaurant food, I try to eat a pretty straightforward diet. There's a lot of cruciferous vegetables and root vegetables and olive oil and salt and herbs. I think the proteins, you know, it depends on your house. You know, oftentimes that's really focused on what, especially your family kids like, but you can do a lot of, I think, sauces and sam- samplings and like palate expansion and a lot of giving kids individual choices. I think every mom listening knows this, right? Taco night's awesome because like they build it themselves and like <laughs> they can put the right. stuff on they like and it also empowers them to kind of engage. So I'm sure most Americans are probably aware that this eating that has happened in America is one of the root causes to depression, to anxiety, to these mental health issues. Do you believe that that's a main reason of why our uh, mental health issues are on the rise is just a lack of nutrients Mm. or it's only one of many reasons. Nutrition is one of the lifestyle factors that contributes to our mental health epidemic for sure. That's very, very clear in the data at this point. And I think it's one of those things that we intuitively know when you eat well, you feel better. 
when you live a life that's on the go, not nourishing yourself, rushing, not digesting, and eating a lot of ultra-processed foods, in general, people feel worse. I think we need to be cautious in some ways not to attribute the mental health epidemic just to bad food. There's a lot of challenges our mental health is facing, but I think we all can agree nutrition's one of them. Where I, I get concerned is where people kind of, you know, it's all this hidden thing that you're eating and that's why you have depression. Right. Or when people have depression and they say, you know, I'm, I'm on medication now, I hear a lot of stigma and what gets said to them. Like, oh, have you tried yoga? Have you tried eating right? Almost like someone who's taking a mental health medication has a, considered it carefully. Right. I prescribe meds all the time and, and people consider it really carefully. Right. There's so much right. stigma uh, for most people, not everyone. It's really it's, it's shifting in wonderful ways, I have to say. So we want to be cautious. You know, I don't mean to be like all hesitant. For sure, food contributes to the mental health epidemic. Those two things are like intertwined. Right? We can't separate obesity, diabetes, hypertension from the mental health epidemic because all, all of those medical conditions vastly increase the odds that we're going to struggle with our mental health. And already, you know, it's, it's most of us, right? It's 20% of us every year. So, you know, when I'm standing in a room and you think, well, if we stood here for five years, like, I was like most of us, right? And, and so this, you know, it's always a new idea, I think, that we're having, that we all need to do a better job with the things we know, improve mental health, sleeping better, eating a more nutrient-dense diet, managing our stress and being more mindful, stop making excuses about our bad sleep and do something, you know, move our bodies. So in our, our team now, we call this uh, mental fitness. I'm here. For all the mental health crises, I've worked really hard to be good in those spaces and uh, and to help. But, uh, you know, I, I also really want to make sure that we're always building something and optimizing something clinically for patients, right? What is that next set of kind of skills, habits, orientation, language that you need to really feel that you're manifesting in a more complete way? So... Like you said, with medicine, I actually have nothing against antidepressants at all. For some people, they're completely life-saving. I was on them years ago. My whole story was I battled depression and I was on it. They weren't very effective for me. They would change dosage and change brands and medications. And anyways, I finally was like, I just need to heal. Like someone helped me heal. And I went on this big journey of learning how to heal. And at the time I was eating, you know, all the ultra processed foods and I changed to a healthier lifestyle with all the things that you said, moving and my sleep and eating and all those things. And so my frustration though today is that so many doctors don't even discuss food or exercise or mm -hmm. sleep with their patients. And they just come in and say, I'm depressed and automatically the pills are prescribed. And so I feel like the medical world needs a little bit of educating on that. There's actually other things that can help besides just medicine. Would you agree? I would completely agree. First, I just thank you for sharing with me and orienting me to that part of your story. I'm sure your regular listeners know that about you, and I just appreciate that. I think your experience is a really common one. And I think that we know that the efficacy, right, how well the medicine works really depends on who's just prescribing it. So if you're in a clinical trial or getting your medicine from somebody who only has seven minutes, and that's their only intervention as opposed to you're sitting with somebody for several hours. And even in that case, the medicines aren't you know, as effective as we would like right now. It's where there's a lot of excitement about um, the psychedelics. And I think that's also where there's like so much excitement about nutritional psychiatry and about lifestyle medicine, you know, where, you know, as you noted, 
those those things really move the dial. I'm really curious what really worked for you when you think about your mental fitness and going from that. Now, depression is like a horrible illness, right? I mean, it's all over my family. You know, I, I sit with individuals who are really struggling with it. And so I'm curious as you think back, you know, what were the things that everybody with depression, everybody who's treating depression should know about what worked for you? Right. So I tell people all the time, for me, depression was my body screaming for help because so many things were wrong, so many underlying root causes that once we did a variety of tests from blood to saliva to urine, you know, lots of different testing, we found out a whole slew of things that was affecting me, even from as simple as like low in magnesium, not absorbing my B vitamins, my cortisol was off, I had a gluten intolerance, I had probably 15 different things I could list, but they all were playing a part into the body just being like, okay, enough is enough, I can't work effectively and, you know, do the best for you when I'm not being nourished and I'm low in these nutrients and I've got all this inflammation. My inflammation markers were really high. So a lot of things were going on. So I am a big believer in antidepressants because I think they're life-saving, but I also am a big believer and we've got to do our part of what you're saying, feeding our body the right nutrients and the lifestyle factors. Yeah, and I love one that you're using the word we, that you've got a team of people who you trust. Two, that you're diagnostically curious. And there's a lot of controversy and debate. I think sometimes I sound contrarian about, you know, all of the new lab tests and this and that. And one of the things that I think we all have to acknowledge is that when you're suffering and conventional medicine hasn't given you answers, there's a lot of other data out there right now that patients seek. And right. that one of the things we've had to do is be a lot more open to that. You know, right. understand that people aren't flocking to functional medicine for no reason. Right? They're feeling seen and they're getting a set of data or more data. You know, people aren't interested in integrative medicine because we like, you know, crystals and burning sage. There's something really significant there. There's a reason that more than 50% of patients who have clinical depression, it's very clear published data, seek and use complementary and alternative medicine. In fact, if you're not asking about that, I, when I teach clinicians, you know, if you're not asking about that or just living in denial about it, like you're not being a good clinician. Right. You're not really understanding your patient's perspective of how they're treating their health. So right. I think you're okay. But I, I interrupted you. Oh, no, that was great. No, nope. one part was getting a team and uh, getting a better workup. Were no. there a couple other things that would like really help? Well, for me, it was eating better, though. I mean, I was eating Frosted Flakes for breakfast and then going and having Burger King for lunch and at dinner. Who knows what frozen meal I was having? So I probably had a carrot, you know, maybe once a week, if that. Mm. But it was the American standard diet. You know what I mean? I actually want to move topics now, if this is okay, because I know we've talked a lot about food and lifestyle factors. And something that I get asked quite a bit from my audience is about alternative treatments, but especially ketamine. Ketamine is a new one that lots of people are hearing more and more about. And I know you've studied it, things like that. So can we talk about ketamine for a little bit? And will you Mm -hmm. start maybe at the basics and just tell my listeners, for those that don't know what it is, will you just tell them what ketamine is? Many people have heard of ketamine as a horse tranquilizer, which it is. Many people have heard about ketamine as a club drug, which it is. Ketamine originally was discovered, I believe, Parker Davis was a pharmaceutical company, I think it's 1962. And it was discovered and people noticed there was what's called an emergence phenomenon that as patients would come out of anesthesia, it's a very, very good, safe anesthesia and actually works on a different set 
of brain chemicals than other anesthetics. So it's a kind of unique molecule. It's very safe. But when people come out, they describe like psychedelic journeys or they'd come back and they'd be like, man, I'm in a good mood after that surgery. And so the antidepressant and psychedelic effects of ketamine were known. They were utilized kind of, uh, I would say, underground in a certain way by a number of clinicians, primarily on the West Coast, still on the East Coast, actually, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. There's a little bit of it, but it's more of a West Coast phenomenon. Ketamine then in 2000 uh, is about when it comes onto the scene as uh, for patients who have resistant depression, an IV protocol is developed where people usually are given six IV sessions over three weeks. Ketamine is what's called a dissociative anesthetic. So it works on the NMDA receptor. And, and, and when people uh, dissociate, uh, you kind of uh, drift or become less aware, drift away or become less aware of your body. And then it really is a variable medicine, depending on the dosing, the delivery route, and, and people's psychological makeup and resistance in terms of what people experience. It really ranges from full psychedelic experiences to uh, darker kind of experiences to more very physical experiences. Um, it begins to get used in psychiatry, but there's this problem, which is that ketamine will get people out of depression. And particularly there's exciting data that if you're acutely suicidal, ketamine kind of very quickly can make you feel not suicidal. And so one, that's a really challenging patient population to suddenly start working with a powerful substance like this. But two, that's also such an exciting idea because when you work with patients who are in crisis, they're in so much pain. And the idea that you can say like, hey, let's just like take it down a notch, feel more kind of cushion and, and just a little more space to sort this out, less acuity. And that would help everybody feel more relaxed. So for about 20 years, we have this data. I would say over that time, ketamine clinics began to pop up in America. There are now 509 by last count. Let's call it 550 ketamine clinics in America that have grown. And there's also a growing, I would say, ketamine drug and club scene. The challenging parts uh, around this is that ketamine, in some ways like the opioids, has a lot of clinical utility and benefit for some people. It can be habit-forming. I guess we should fast forward to right now. Why, why do we have a clinic where we're giving ketamine as ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? I think for a few reasons. Right now, ketamine is the only way to access psychedelic medicine legally. And so to be in accordance with all of the laws of the United States and Wyoming, which is super important to all of us, uh, ketamine is the way to access psychedelic medicine. Ketamine is also, I would say, the kind of easiest and friendliest of the psychedelics in the sense that a lot of journeys last six hours, eight hours. They can be very intense. Ketamine is a shorter experience. And then the hope is to take some of the data and then using ketamine-assisted psychotherapy where you, you slow things down a little bit and you use what's called, um, the idea behind all the psychedelics is you open up what's called neuroplastic window. You open up a period where the brain some of the kind of that loop, Carolyn, you know, anyone listening with depression, or anxiety, you know, that loop, that way that the brain almost feels stuck. You're looking at your beautiful life and family and like, yeah, you feel depressed. Mm -hmm. it's like, and, and however that is for you, I want to think about the psychedelics. So one of our, uh, one of my mentors in the space, Harvey Schwartz, talks about like the benevolent disruption. I'm going to kind of like just shake things up a little bit. And what patients have been experiencing and do experience is kind of seeing uh, maybe new options and feeling just kind of almost leaning into a new set of feelings sometimes. And so psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is really 
at, at the core of all of these new trials, whether it's depression or the alcohol use disorder studies, all these ones coming out of Johns Hopkins that are making the news and NYU, uh, one, uh, one of our team members, Xiao Hu, was just on this you know, epic, it's a major depressive disorder trial, one dose of psilocybin, just in a very positive trial. All of these trials, it's important to note, are psychotherapy trials. And so the preparation, the context in which people take the psychedelics, and then the most important part, the integration, right? What's different between getting high on ketamine at a concert and, and sitting with me for three hours is it's really important to be making something of that experience. And that, you know, that, that takes a little bit of getting used to because it's in, in some ways new for a lot of clinicians working in the space clinically, but also new for a lot of patients. So is ketamine effective after the first time or people don't see improvement until two, three or a week, two weeks? Yeah. One, to look at the people who really respond, there's a ketamine advocacy network. And these are thousands of patients who for years have been like, ketamine totally changed the game of my depression. So I think it's important to sort of hear their voices in this. I say the story and the concern is that people sort of need boosters and then the worry is, is uh, getting dependent. I think what's very interesting, I think, about ketamine in some ways is it doesn't seem to be super habit-forming in the IM format that we use, and then avoiding some of, uh, I guess, what, what would put people at more risk for dependence and addiction is really at the center of this. At the same time, right, what are the psychedelics being used for? What's, what's, I'm, I'm here in Jackson, Wyoming. What's the biggest problem for mental health here? Alcohol abuse. Mm. Right? What's the way we're now thinking about treating alcohol abuse with ketamine and psychedelics? So, you know, there is a way, there's this kind of, I would say, new frontier where things that we never really would have considered. Like 10 years ago, if you had uh, alcohol use disorder, I never would have considered saying you should really think about a psilocybin journey. Well, question for you. With ketamine and psilocybin, I guess we could say, but with ketamine, is it changing the neuropathways? Because altering neuropathways, I feel like, is this trendy topic on social media right now. And so is that mm -hmm. what ketamine is doing? Yes. And I would say that also, I like your asterisks because who said changing neuropathways is always good? Right. Exactly. You know, have this idea that you open up a neuroplastic window and then that's all wonderful. And it's important to note that, you know, powerful things happen to people. The, one of the reasons it's very important, especially Western trained docs like me, it's really important to understand more of, I would say, the traditional and ritualistic natures of these medicines, where they come from, and how you as a clinician actually need to do some work and be in the clinical space differently. I feel like I keep not answering your question, Carlin. I want to make sure and answer them specifically. Are you altering neural pathways? I think that's the hope, first of all, of all mental health treatments. If you believe a biopsychosocial model of like modern psychiatry, there's the biology part of it. There's the personal psychology part of it. And then there's the social, like what's happening in the context of our lives, whether it's Prozac or this great food we're talking about. I'm talking about the ways that nutritional psychiatry works. Number one, and in the book, like new concepts is it helps activate neuroplasticity. Okay. And these nutrients like zinc and magnesium, B12, the launching omega-3 fats actually lead to more transcription, more production of brain growth factors. And so I would say there's kind of a common pathway now for a lot of mental health treatments, whether it's the psychedelics or medications or even psychotherapies of kind of quelling and lowering inflammation um, and increasing neuroplasticity. 
Let me ask you this question, because I feel like a lot of people don't understand what we're talking about with neural pathways and things like that. And so yeah. someone described it to me like this. For instance, they said, pretend like these neural pathways were rivers in your brain. And every time you're anxious, like you immediately go down that same river. And so instead of always being stuck in this one river, if we can make new neural pathways, then when you're anxious, you would go down a different river that maybe was not as anxious forming. Does that make sense? And so they're like, it's making like new rivers rather than being stuck in the same one with depression or with anxiety. Is that a simplified way that we could explain it or not necessarily? I think that's one of the ways I've heard it explained. We had our first group journey. It's one of the ways that ketamine-assisted psychotherapy is, is really powerful and interesting, getting people together who are having similar challenges with their mental health or have had a set of traumas, for example, and to give them a space to experience the medicines uh, or medicine and, and to heal. Groups do really powerful things in the psychedelic space. And so it's weird. I'm not used to talking about the psychedelic space so much. And so there's something that as you begin to think of the journeys and the experiences of people who get kind of pulled into these very non-ordinary states of consciousness. One of the powerful things about guiding is even if you're not taking medicine, you, you if you're a therapist, you really get pulled in to a very um, sacred and special space. And so that's, I think, why I'm, I'm, I'm losing a little orientation in answering you. I wanted to answer you in the words of a woman who was in a group, keeping her content confidential, but what you're describing, sort of how it works. I heard it described by several women last night, and they were part of this group journey we did, and they talked about feeling the opening of a space that as they could kind of almost see and, and, and feel and get a sense of like some of the darkness and some of maybe the depression or some of that we were challenging with, they felt space from it and almost they described like an optionality that they'd experience some joy, euphoria, sense of calm. And it's almost like their mind was a little curious, like, you know, this other option has a lot of interesting possibilities, <laughs> like kind of what the person your friend noted about. But, you know, there are some other rivers to maybe try out, some other streams to go down. And so I've certainly heard it like that. I think also what's interesting about the psychedelic space being a psychotherapy because right? again, if you're doing psychedelics without psychotherapy, my sense is not that's in no way what's kind of going on in the evidence. Right? That's kind of taking the evidence as an excuse to do meds and medicines, and no judgment, but it's just you know we're sort of thinking about psychotherapy and how these things work. Good psychotherapists go to psychotherapy. Okay. And good psychedelic psychotherapists. It's kind of universally known and talked about that you experience these medicines yourself. So, you know, I guess I'm speaking about some of the people who journey, but also in my own experience, I do a lot of talking about feelings. And for me, something that was very healing was much more physical. I experienced a feeling of like calmness and relaxation that I hadn't in a while. I mean, not enough breath, maybe not enough sleep, you know, something. I think what's also challenging about the psychedelic space, especially for traditional medicine, is that, you know, there's a lot of like, I don't quite have words for that. A lot of what's called you know, ephemeral experiences. I was in there and like, I don't quite have the words to talk about how awesome and expansive and great or scary or impactful this was, which I think frustrates people. I hope that helps answer some of the kind of question of some of what I've heard and some of what I've experienced, I think opening up other feelings. And then there's something about almost, sometimes I felt it was like, it created a little, like almost like an impression in the sand of a certain feeling state. And that it helped me in the subsequent months know about that state in a way. 
mm-hmm. and be able to access it more and be able to be more clear about not like I want to feel better. Like, no, well, remember that? Like, like kind of lean my nervous system into that. And so I think those are some of the ways that it can help. I think there's also just symptom reduction. We've had patients who've had, you know, single journeys who just you know have a little more symptom relief cushion with the notion that you know that that probably isn't going to last forever but as people are maybe making some decisions about therapy or medications or whether they want to engage in treatment or not right again paired with some therapy and some engagement in treatment i, I think can give people more relief more quickly than than probably we've seen okay that's good to know so question for you is ketamine only for adults or has it been used on kids? There are trials, I think, particularly around some of the um, autism spectrum community, but certainly thinking about um, the affective disorders like depression. So I think there's a lot of clinical trials and a lot of talk about kids, psychedelics, how do we frame that appropriately? What are the long-term effects? You know, neuroplasticity sounds cool when you're like old like me and you're like more brain cells, more connections, like <laughs> heal it. Now, when you're a kid in development or when it's your teen's brain, you know, and there's a lot of question marks, that feels a little more challenging of a question. So I think that's really a TBD with a lot of research being done. You know, that okay. said, but there's just a lot of families who are suffering with all sorts of mental health conditions. And I think it's really hard right now to balance the kind of caution that we often have in medicine and psychiatry, right, with all the enthusiasm. So sometimes I feel like I'm in this spot where if I'm not recommending psychedelics, or I think it's a bad idea. People feel I'm kind of withholding it for some reason. Mm. And then what's really different now is people are making decisions on their own. And right. so it's a new space for all of us. Right. I'm curious, do you like one psychedelic over the other, like psilocybin versus ketamine, or do you think they all have their benefits? Well, I would say that there are probably more experienced clinicians in the space to best answer that because ketamine is the only legal psychedelic. Mm. It's the only one that I really speak about and, and certainly the only one that I use clinically. Two of our colleagues on our clinical team, I'm really blessed with incredible colleagues deep in the psychedelic medicine world, Dr. Xiaojie Hu, who's part of the NYU research team, and Dr. Tanmeet Seti, who's part of the University of Washington research team using psilocybin to treat healthcare provider burnout. And so I get to hear them talk about the psilocybin research and the guiding of the journeys. I think there are certain things, for example, we were talking about alcohol use disorder. The data has been about psilocybin but we don't clinically have access to psilocybin, which is, that's the um, psilocine is the active molecule in magic mushrooms uh, or psychedelic mushrooms. And so, you know, if you talk to experienced clinicians, there probably is an interest in MDMA, particularly a lot of research of MDMA and PTSD. That's been the main molecule that's been focused on. MDMA is also known as ecstasy or molly. And there's been a lot of research in the depression and alcohol use disorder community with psilocybin. And so, you know, in terms of like which one, I think, again, right now only one is legal. I think that doesn't limit everybody, but it kind of limits me in terms of what I'm most clinically experienced with. And at the same time, I think I encourage people to not think about these necessarily as singular experiences. I think that that's probably the biggest thing I've learned is in research trials, there's a real specific protocol. You stop all the meds, you do this. In clinical experience, really making sure patients are empowered to have a variety of experiences and to dial in dosing appropriately and to form therapeutic alliances and partnerships and 
take take powerful messages and powerful experiences and do something with them. I think right now that's where there's a lot of clinical exploration. And our hope is that developing the infrastructure, good guiding, great mental health clinicians and healthcare for kind of wraparound care as the other compounds come out. So MDMA should be scheduled by the FDA. We don't know exactly how that's going to happen. Certain states like Colorado and Oregon, you can already access psilocybin. So know, some states have gone ahead and moved forward with this, but we want to be prepared in the sense that, you know, the idea that we're going to drop a medicine into the mental health of America, that's an eight hour psychedelic journey that has certain benefits, certain side effects, certain risks, and that, you know, we're used to seeing people in 30 and 45 minute sessions. Right. So we're we're hoping to really help uh, and be part of the movement that's like ready for when the new evidence really kind of fully matures, which is kind of happening right before our eyes with PTSD and MDMA. Right. I also want to give a shout out to Dr. Jeff Greenbaum, since I'm naming names of great psychedelic and Amy Lane, who are on our team and Jeff's the local ER doc. And just as a physician, you know, having a, a psychedelic trained emergency room physician to make sure medically everyone stays safe, but also it's just really uh, wonderful to have this diversity of clinical minds. Amy's our spiritual director. And so there's a way that psychedelics kind of brings that piece into mental health of thinking about our spirituality, thinking about our connection to bigger and deeper things that's, you know, I think for so many patients and so many clinicians been missing. That part feels really good, Carolyn, does you know, that like it's new, but to sit and behold a group of people journeying together and doing healing and to feel overwhelmed with the motion. And, you know, it's a wonderful thing to experience in healthcare these days. Well, thank you so much for explaining ketamine and all of those things. I actually have so many more questions that I could ask you, but we need to wrap up here. Maybe we'll have to do a part two sometime to finish all the questions. I'd be happy to do a part two. And I want to thank everyone for listening. And sorry if I got a little meandering. I've spent a lot of time talking about food and mental health, and I've spent less time talking about the psychedelics and, and probably also my clinical work and personal experiences. So I think Carlin took us into some great spaces for me, but I'm sorry if I got a little meandering, but mostly I just want to thank everyone. And I hope, and and thank you, Carlin, for being open about mental health and being a podcast with a big following that just talks about mental health and talks about, in a what feels very reasonable way and effective way about your own journey. So I hope this information helps you. I think mental health is both really complex and really kind of simple at times that we often know exactly what we need to do. So I hope this helps you do one of those things. And I wish you the very best in your journey. I hope it helps you feed your mental health in a new way. And I hope the talk about psychedelics is helpful to you. Well, thank you for all of that info. Before you leave, will you just tell everybody what the names of your books are and where else they can find you for more info? Yeah, my books are Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. That's the most recent. And we showed some of the illustrations earlier. Uh, Eat Complete is a cookbook. It's got 100 recipes. It goes through 21 nutrients. 50 Shades of Kale is a cookbook. Uh, send up to my love affair with kale um, and led to the founding of National Kale Day. We happen to be recording on. Nobody's mentioned it, but oh. I'm going to. So happy National Kale Day, Carolyn. Who knew that was um, a thing? Now I do. We were more active in the past, but Fifty Shades of Kale was a lot of fun. And then my first book uh, with Tyler Graham was called The Happiness Diet, which really got me interested in the history of how food changed and got to that really got into the details of that question that Carlin asked of like, did we really just mess up food and that messed up our mental health? And we really get deep into the history of food and mental health in that book. 
We have a great new course, Healing the Modern Brain, that's up on my site, which is a mental fitness course. It goes through the tenets of mental fitness. And I'm pretty active on Instagram and I run my account myself and check my DMs. So it's a treat to speak with all of you. And I'm Drew Ramsey, MD, pretty much everywhere. So I was just going to say your social media is Dr. Drew Ramsey. Right. Just uh, Drew Ramsey, MD, MD, is my Instagram and my Facebook. And then my website is DrewRamseyMD.com. Perfect. Okay. Well, I always end my podcast by asking my guests a certain question because my account is just ingredients. And so I always ask my guests to close with telling what they have found to be the best ingredient to life. What would you say it is? It's fall. And the best ingredient for fall is the lentil. A cup of lentils, 230 calories, 18 grams of protein, 90% of your daily need of vitamin B9, folate, one of the nutrients most clearly tied to depression and mood, packed with magnesium, packed with fiber, and just probably the easiest, most wonderful soup to make in your slow cooker with a carrot and a celery. So I'm, I'm going to say lentil. I mean, it's a little hard not to say kefir and tinned fish, just if I were going to get like a second and third, but I'll just say lentils. Oh, I love it. I'll have to go make lentil soup tonight for the kids. Thank you so much for being here. I know the listeners have learned quite a bit and now they can go follow you and buy your books. And I'm actually really curious to grab one of your books as well. And so thank you for taking the time to be here and teaching us all of these things. Well, thanks so much, Carlin. It's great to be with you all. And uh, yeah, anytime you want to do part two, let me know. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram. 